Max Verstappen leads a Red Bull Racing 1-2 at the Spanish Grand Prix to take the championship lead after Charles Leclerc retires with an engine failure. This is the F1 Strategy Report. My name is Michael Laminato and this is Round 6, the Spanish Grand Prix, powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. Max Verstappen led home Sergio Perez for Red Bull Racing's second 1-2 finish of the season, but it wasn't as easy as it sounds. The Dutchman found himself stuck behind an excellent George Russell and with a broken DRS in yet another enraging bout of unreliability, and soon he had Sergio Perez pressuring him for position. But the team extricated the reigning champion by switching him to a three-stop strategy in a deft bit of tactics on an afternoon blistering heat had other strategists confounded. He snatched the place from Russell in pit lane, and the team then ordered Perez to cede the lead to ensure Verstappen maximised his points haul. Sure, it took Leclerc retiring from a comfortable lead with a turbo problem, but after two technical DNFs already this season, the Dutchman was happy to assume the championship lead. To help unpack the Spanish Grand Prix, I'm joined by Lawrence Edmondson from ESPN. Lawrence, welcome back to the Strategy Report. Oh, thanks for having me back. And fortunately, after a race weekend that was genuinely interesting from a strategic point of view, uh, a track where we don't always get interesting races, but I think a lot of it came down to just how extreme the conditions were there. You know, we were on the grid and it almost felt like being in an oven, 35 degrees going up to 37 and uh, it really kind of helped help the racing, I think. It was weird. Let's just start with the temperature because it, it, it is unexpected. You know, people think about Spain being very warm, but it's still quite early in the year. And the effect that that temperature had did feel, I mean, 37 degrees is very hot, but it almost felt disproportionate. It, it, it did feel like an outlying kind of uh, effect. How much were teams and drivers, you know, we saw ice vests and things, having to mitigate against this, and how expected was it ahead of the weekend? I'm not sure how early on people got, got whiff of the forecast that it was going to be so hot, but we were seeing news headlines uh, on the Thursday and the Friday that the south of Spain was going to hit 42 degrees, wow. which I think it did. So it shows you how, you know, how hot it, it's been in Europe um, over the weekend. So uh, I think it was expected to some extent, but then... You know what can you do? You have your cooling options available to you. Of course, the teams, uh, you know, design these cars to run in places like Saudi Arabia and um, Bahrain, the Middle East. Uh, you know, we don't have that many daytime uh, Middle East races anymore, if any. Uh, we don't have that many, you know, daytime really hot races. But um, they, they are obviously designed to, to work within those kind of conditions. But what you saw was teams, you know, running the most extreme versions of their cooling. So all those fins we see down the side of uh, the engine covers and stuff like that, you know, they, they were big. The Aston Martin, for example, was uh, running uh, different sizes of cooling on both sides. I'm not entirely sure why. Presumably there's something that needs to be cooled a bit more on one side. But uh, one side of it was this big black carbon fibre patch that they hadn't even got around to painting because clearly it had been added, you know, quite late onto an already updated car um, just to make sure that it would uh, have the, as much cooling as possible to get through the race. And, of course, it had an impact on the tyres, which is why I think we saw, uh, you know, this quite interesting strategic battle play out. No one knew uh, going in whether it would be two-stop or three-stop. I think most people were aiming for two-stop, but three-stop was definitely an option. We'll get into which was best later, I'm sure. And then also um, we saw throughout the race uh, the Mercedes, which made this huge step, but really, really managing um, PU temps throughout the race and to the point that, you know, they were lifting and coasting 
from very, very early on. And then at the end, really had to lift in case to the point that Lewis lost a position, of course. But again, something I'm sure we'll get into. But so he had all these factors going on. Plus, let's not forget the poor little driver himself <laughs> sat there in the cockpit in very, very hot conditions. And for a guy like Lando Norris, mm. who was battling tonsillitis, can you imagine? I mean, I cannot imagine what that was like. And, that, uh, and, and that's where the, you realise quite how impressive these drivers are and how uh, gritty and determined they are to get to an end of a race when you're dealing with what, you know, he didn't look well before the race whatsoever. Uh, he certainly didn't look well after the race because uh, he didn't even do the media duties. He went straight to a doctor to to see if he was okay and refill him with fluids and all the rest of it. But uh, yeah, tonsillitis in 37 degree heat in a cockpit of a Formula One car going around pulling 5G in some of the fastest corners in the sport. That is remarkable. Really puts into perspective, next time you're sick and you don't want to get off the couch, just get over it. Deal with it. Go back to work. Just jump in a, jump in a Formula 1 car yeah. and do 66 <laughs> laps of the Catalonia circuit and yeah, see how you feel after that. Yeah, you need to find a body stressor that's more extreme than your tonsillitis pain. It puts it all into perspective, I guess. This was a race. It was earmarked before. It's earmarked every year, in fact, as, a, as an upgrade circuit. It's the race where teams tend to bring their, their first significant upgrade package, and that's got a lot of focus this year because, obviously, these are new rules, and we all want to see how many steps can be made, how big those steps are. Why is this track such a good upgrade venue? Why is it that there's so much focus on it? And what were some of the things that we saw this weekend? We'll get into some of the particular advances, Mercedes, obviously, a little bit later on. But how big were the upgrades we did end up seeing this weekend? Uh, some of them were huge. It varied between teams. And this is, you know, an interesting thing is that some teams uh, considered it necessary to bring one big upgrade together. Uh, and then other teams have been doing trickling in little upgrades. Uh, a team like Haas, for example, had zero <laughs> upgrades on the car this weekend and are bringing a big uh, package for France is what they're aiming for. But yeah, they'll see whether they get there in time. Um, so th- there's all these different tactics and ways of doing it. I think the reason why we see so much in Spain is because the teams have a huge amount of data from this circuit. Uh, they've tested here year after year after year. And of course, they were there in pre-season testing with the base level versions of their cars, in some cases, pure launch spec versions that changed very, very quickly. But um, they have that data there. And then also there's the proximity factor. Um, I know we raced in Imola, uh, which isn't too far from a lot of the team's bases earlier this year, but this is you know the start of the European season. Um, previously, we'd had four flyaway races uh, around the world. And of course, just getting the parts out last minute. And of course, Formula One always works last minute because the more time you leave it in the wind tunnel or in CFD, the more performance hopefully you'll get out of it at the end of it. So uh, because of that last minute nature of F1, getting the parts to Spain is is, is always um, uh, a factor as well. Aston Martin, perfect example of that. On the Thursday night, they broke the curfew, uh, not because they'd made a mistake, but because they'd always intended to break the curfew because they knew the parts would come in so late and to get them sorted on both cars, ready to go for Friday practice, it was just one of the things they were going to have to do. They were going to have to break the mechanics curfew. So I think that's why why they do it. But um, yeah, it, it is interesting. And the added factor we have this year is the budget cap and how you manage your budget, which of course is limited uh, under that cap, uh, to bring updates. And that in itself is quite a task because um, obviously you want maximum performance from every pound you spend. So you'll be very careful about which bits of the car you update and when you bring it. And uh, obviously the earlier you bring it, the better because you have it for more races, but equally again, you want to get as much performance out of each one. So there's all these balancing acts. And then on top of that this year, we have 
quite unusual levels of inflation to the point that a lot of the team's original plan, they're having to question whether they can actually fit that all in and still have money to go to races. I mean, that's that's what Christian Horner was speaking about on Sunday night. That's how extreme it's getting is that will they have enough money to continue to race? And then, of course, that then becomes political because you've got the big teams going back to the FIA and saying, look, we need to raise the budget cap because we've got inflationary pressures. So you've got all of this stuff and it does all impact what will go on the car and how fast that car will go. And then one last added factor this year, which uh, was certainly the case for a number of teams, Mercedes probably most prominently, is that they had this porpoising issue right from the start of the year that they weren't expecting. So all of a sudden, your planned upgrades uh, just to smother the car with downforce were not necessarily the right direction to go anymore. So you had to kind of rethink, well, first of all, we need to get rid of this porpoising issue before we start looking at just piling downforce onto the car. Because had they continued to just pile downforce onto the car, the porpoising would have got worse. They would never have got the car to where they needed it to be. So there's a bit of kind of fixing band-aids going on here and there as you go along. So it's a fascinating element to the sport. But I think this year, like you said, because it's these new regulations and because there's been a few curveballs in these in these new regulations, it's uh, there's a lot more going on as well. Bad news for anyone hoping for Christmas party money afterwards, I guess, considering how tight budgets are at the moment. Let's talk about one of those teams that upgraded in particular, Ferrari. This was essentially the first upgrade of the year. They've brought a couple of bits and pieces here and there, but this is what they've been banking on. That's been the strategy to, to do it in one hit and understand the car deeply in the meanwhile. A lot of pressure on that upgrade package as well, because in the last few races, Red Bull Racing has not just caught up, but it seems like after Miami, probably on balance had the fastest car and of course the championship picture was tightening up considerably one of the ferrari weaknesses seemed to be tire wear in the last few races it seemed like that was the case again on friday noting the conditions were pretty extreme but by the time we got to the race and we can talk a little bit about leclerc here considering his race didn't last so long that didn't seem to be an issue anymore and they actually seemed kind of optimistic all things considered how big a step did this seem like Ferrari had made, considering we don't have as much information as I suppose we would have expected after the race? So Ferrari were pretty happy with with the update they brought, um, and they were actually quite happy on Friday. But the one thing from Friday was that they were clearly still struggling with degradation. If you looked at the long runs, uh, there was a big drop-off in, in performance. And they said that's because they split their setups because they had this brand new update and they weren't sure which way to go with it and so they were exploring as many options as possible and then they did the unusual thing of running uh, a relatively long run in um in final practice which most teams tend to dedicate towards just how do we get as much performance out of the car as possible ahead of qualifying so you could see they were still working on ideas and solutions and it seemed to click so yeah Leclerc's opening stint now I know he had the benefit of being in free air at the front and that always helps with tyre degradation and everything but he looked really set to run long into that race Uh, the longer you run into the race the more options you give yourself and I think personally he was on you know a a two-stop strategy to victory which may have become a three-stop in the end if he had the pit window which he could have used just to put a safety stop in there so it looked it looked good for Ferrari and the performance of the car looked good and of course in qualifying Arguably, we didn't see a direct uh, competition between the top two drivers because Max had that DRS issue. But again, Ferrari just had the edge. So I think this update was what Ferrari was hoping. I think it, you know, it has helped. They also said that it helped with the porpoising as well because while porpoising is something that we've talked about more at other teams because it hasn't really impacted Ferrari's performance so much, um, 
the car was still doing it and visibly and you know very obviously and especially on the straights and then it would kind of settle itself for the corners which is why they weren't so worried about it but it's still something you don't want to happen um in terms of their degradation and stuff well after the race christian horner pointed to carlos science and said well look at you know science's degradation clearly that was uh, quite bad but of course we know science went off at turn four he said there was damage to the car he could feel the damage uh, the team was still investigating how much it was costing him in lap time but as soon as you're at a track like uh spain and you've uh, you've got damage on the car and you're putting more stress through the tires than necessary for some of these corners it's a downward spiral and we saw that with say alex albon right at mm-hmm. the back you know he had damage um quite early on and that just completely ruined any chance of, of him having a normal race so uh you know science had a similar similar issue so i don't think we can look at uh science's degradation or his race performance which is what christian horner was tempted to do when he was comparing whether red bull would have won the race anyway had leclerc stayed in um and he was saying that perhaps they would have uh based on science's performance but i think science's performance is a bit of a red herring in this case and the reality is that it was it was actually pretty solid and Ferrari got what they wanted from those upgrades. But hey, this is a great thing. You know, two different approaches to upgrades. Ferrari seeming to go for these big uh, blocks at a time, uh, you know, big building blocks uh, to move their way through the season. Red Bull, lots of significant, uh, you know, well, smaller but significant upgrades uh, through the year instead. So who will win out? Well, that's that's the exciting thing about it, isn't it? Yeah, well, whoever doesn't run out of money, I guess, is the maybe the ultimate answer. Who's to say? You touched on something there, which was that, uh, there, there was a lot of uncertainty going into this race. Still not a lot of clear information even after the fact, certainly in Ferrari's case for, for a number of reasons. But it struck me that even at the start of this race, it felt very un-Spanish Grand Prix-like because normally by the time we get to Sunday, even sometimes by the time we're part of the way through Friday, you can almost pretty much know exactly what the tyre strategy is going to be. You're going to know which teams might try something different, someone qualifies out of position, whatever. It didn't even seem like at the start of the race everyone was convinced what tyre to start on. Most of them, in fact, all of them, uh, except for Lewis Hamilton, ended up starting on the soft tyre. And that, I mean, essentially almost had no bearing in the sense that there were so many stops, you ended up somewhere completely different anyway. How much of the emphasis, though, here is on, I guess, what they learned on Friday in that case? Or is it just drivers having a guess fundamentally just trying to see what was going to happen because it didn't feel planned in the way we normally have spanish grand prix feel like they're set to a very no, that's right uh, defined um, course. and i think that was the exciting thing about it and also you know i, th- I think the best strategies were the ones which remained flexible throughout you know mm-hmm. the guys who were trying to stick to a two-stop because presumably in a strategy meeting ahead of the race they decided on two-stop uh lost out a bit but then one guy who made well, it wasn't actually a two-stop, but effectively it was a two-stop. Lewis Hamilton, because he pitted mm. after, on the first lap and then only made two stops after that, uh, was arguably, that was probably the, the most impressive race of, of, of the lot in terms of performance. Okay, he spent a lot of time in that clean, free air because the way his strategy worked, he did a fair bit of overtaking, but he didn't do quite as much as you might expect for someone coming from 19th up to uh, up to fourth at one stage because he was, you know, basically Mercedes kept trying to drop him into free air again so he could use the performance of the car to then move up when the other cars pitted and so a lot of the movement up the field came through pit stops but um but there was an example that a two-stop could work so after the race um you know talking to a few people uh who you know really do know about this stuff and uh and you know they said well you know three stop of course by the end of it looked like the, the way to go and red bull were pretty convinced by that but mercedes you know were saying well actually there wasn't much between a two stop and a three stop and really you know a, a, a two stop 
worked. It, you know, it did. You just had to do it in, in, in the right way. But again, adapting to what was going on around you. And that's what happened with Max. You know, Max could have been on for a two-stop. But then uh, he got stuck behind George. And the reason he got stuck behind George was because his DRS wasn't working. And so then uh, Red Bull went aggressive. They pitted him, put him onto softs, which basically was a signal to everyone that he was going to three-stop his way towards the end of the race. But that period on softs, you know, again, relatively clear air, bit of time to exercise the pace of that car, got him back into a position, got him ahead of Russell, got him, you know, in a position where uh, he was then obviously dropped back behind Perez, and we'll talk about what happened later, I'm sure. Um, but, uh, you know, that th- th- that was it. So it was adapting your way through the race. And even with a guy like Max, where he, the DRS wasn't working, you know, they adapted their way through and, and, and got there in the end. So uh, I, I think that was the key. And uh, again, I, I think a lot of it was down to temperatures. Uh, temperatures, the traffic you hit at various times of the race as well. And just knowing, you know, with a, a lot of um, information, I'm sure, um, being collected by the teams and being put into these computer systems that they have that tell them the, the correct pit stop but also I think a bit of gut feeling and experience kind of guiding the uh, the, the best pit walls there to, towards good results The temperature of the tyres certainly would have made a difference here as everyone was gauging how long they were lasting. Uh, there's certainly temperature in Max Verstappen's cockpit though because that early part of the race let's say before while he was still stuck behind George Russell after he'd spun off by that infamous gust of wind that affected two drivers uh, he was certainly very frustrated and uh, the frustration is sort of one thing it's easy to kind of beat that up a little bit as you know Max Verstappen as an angry man or whatever but I don't, I don't think there has been a race this season at which the Red Bull car hasn't suffered some kind of reliability problem, has there been? Whether it's on both cars or just one of them, this DRS problem even prevented him from setting his final lap in qualifying. Whether or not he would have got polled sort of beside the point, he didn't get a chance to try and potentially could have undone his race, you know, had Mercedes not been, as you'd already mentioned, dealing with such uh, cooling problems. Who knows how far into the race this battle could have gone? How significant is that that frustration from Verstappen that reliability could still cost him? Because, well, it's easy to say, well, he's in the lead of the championship now after one failure from Ferrari. I mean, we saw last year reliability playing a role in the championship as well. How much that frustration is just this ongoing weakness of this team? Yeah, I completely understand Max's frustration. And the thing about Max's frustration is that I know it sounds extreme on the team radio, and that's, that's where we hear it, but... You know, the reality is it doesn't then result in mistakes on the track. And that would be the concern. If you could hear Max getting really upset and then, you know, he goes and throws it away, then you've got a concern. But no, Max, um, quite rightly, having not had DRS for his final lap in Q3, then didn't have it again in the race, despite the fact that they were fixing it, you know, between end of qualifying and start of the race. So it's clearly a you know a weakness on this car and as he said you know we can't even get a i won't say the word drs to work <laughs> you know and that's kind of fair because it is is a rel- for an f1 team it's a relatively simple part of the car to 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 get to function of course there's been failures in the past but yeah you would expect it to work and then of course you look at those drop points you know two second place finishes already this year imagine how big his lead would be had he not had those uh, and even now, you know, even now, even if um, it turns out this Ferrari package, you know, has put Ferrari ahead of Red Bull, at least for a few races, Max continues to lose some points. Uh, and by the end of the year, you know, if those two second places are a factor, and I can imagine it being that tight, certainly, probably a lot, lot tighter, 
then uh, then yeah, we are going to look back at those already. Um, but of course, these things balance out. Charles Leclerc had his uh, unfortunate uh, retirement this weekend. Uh, it may not be the last one either. So uh, the you know we've got to remember that Formula One cars you know are prototypes. They are you know science experiments on wheels and. Every now and again, those experiments will go wrong, uh, especially when you put them in extreme circumstances like we had in uh, in Barcelona. And the other thing, the other factor which Christian Horner talked about a bit after the race as to why maybe they've had this DRS issue is, is weight. You know, they're looking to trim weight in every single way from this car. And perhaps they went a bit extreme with, you know, what they were doing with the DRS actuator. Uh, so you'd think they'd learn from it, take the lesson, uh, you know, uh, come back with something a bit more solid but uh we'll see but um i think max's frustrations are completely understandable he knows what it takes to win a championship against a, a top driver and team like ferrari and leclerc the laps building up to lap 28 when max was ultimately switched on to a three-stop strategy were really interesting because this is where the race was won and lost for a little while it seemed like just a, a battle to recover to second place behind leclerc then it be, suddenly became the battle for the lead uh, once leclerc retired the interesting twist in this wasn't just that that max was struggling to get past george and deciding whether or not the best way forward was to stop or to just keep trying and persisting and trying to, to break george russell but it was sergio perez on a different strategy on what was 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 a more solid two-stop strategy even that didn't end up being the case but that was certainly the direction he was going although I do note that so uncertain was this race that I think at one point George Russell was told he was going to do a one-stop Perez was going to do a one-stop and his response was blimey which sort of summed it all up I guess really wasn't it that's that's how much people didn't understand about what was happening but the pressure Perez was suddenly applying behind Verstappen who was losing that much time battling Russell put Red Bull in a really interesting position because Perez had already waved past Verstappen once in this race, given they're on different strategies, expected the same to be done. That wasn't what happened. He was forced to wait behind for a little while. And this became a little a little bit of a flashpoint, I guess, an interteam flashpoint for them, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And I think understandably so from Sergio's point of view, you know, uh, he had done a great job getting these tyres to lap 17. He hadn't put his first set of tyres through the gravel at turn four. <laughs> uh, he'd actually gained a position on his teammate as a result of Max doing that. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, we, we need Max to attack. And I guess that was understandable, uh, you know, within within the wider base of the strategy. But when it became clear that Max was really going to struggle to get past, I mean, to the point that, you know, he had they not switched onto that three-stop, you know, and they're both mirrored each other's strategies he may not have got past George despite having a much faster car so um, you know that was when you were like well yeah maybe the pay- favour should be repaid and look I don't. I think we're all kidding ourselves if we turn around and say that we expect Perez and Verstappen to get equal treatment even at this stage of the season uh, it's clear that Max is going to be in a very tight battle for the championship until the end and Sergio Perez so far this year unfortunately has done nothing to really suggest that he will be a part of that battle as well and so Red Bull look at that and of course they're going to have their favour one team over the other but it is hard to watch and and see and then of course when it came down to it in that in that final stint and um, you know Max emerges behind Checo comes up behind him very very quickly two seconds per lap you know roughly he was he was gaining but again didn't have that DRS so would he have got past if uh, if Red Bull hadn't employed the team orders and told uh, Checo to get out of the way. Well, it would have been it would have been tricky, you know. And but of course, that's what Red Bull were trying to avoid. Uh, they were in a position where their main rival Ferrari had lost a car in the race. The other Ferrari was way down the order. 
Um, Mercedes weren't quite there. You know, arguably Lewis had a had a race that maybe would have put him in contention for second place uh, had he not had um, the contact with Magnussen. You know, the, the pace of his race was good enough, but obviously he was out of there as well. So you've got the situation where Rebel pretty much had a guaranteed one-two at that stage. Why risk it? You know, and, and on a day when oil temps, water temps have been monitored constantly for fear that they might, you know, go a degree or two over, um, you know, why risk it? And from a team point of view, from a kind of you're shoveling that much money into a Formula One team point of view and you don't want, you know, broken wings and or worse at the end of it, then it makes perfect sense to switch them. But it was just hard to watch, wasn't it? Hard to watch Checo who had done nothing wrong in that race um being told to move over because max had done something wrong made a mistake uh you know the drs wasn't working which would have favored checo in that in that situation but yeah it, it was it was the right and the understandable choice but it's just hard to watch because i think everyone wants to see a race when they when they turn on the tv on a sunday and uh and that bit of it wasn't a race and Perez presumably knows what he's signed up to, right? Whether or not it's in the contract, which it seems increasingly rare these days anyway to have that kind of thing written into a deal. But, you know, he walked into a Red Bull team that was pretty clearly centred around Max Verstappen and Max Verstappen that had destroyed his previous teammates as well. But I can't help but wonder, you know, he was such a good teammate. I know racing drivers hate to hear that, but a good teammate last year, once he was sort of up to speed towards the end of the season in the races he was performing really well at, this year, he's very much playing that that role, even though he's not, as you said, in championship contention, or at least he hasn't been so far. He's pretty regularly now close enough that he is sort of getting himself in the mix in certain parts of the race. I can't help but wonder, because he played the political game very well after this race to try and sort of keep it all offline, let's not do anything over team radio, but... It was particularly that team order or the lack of team order in the middle of the race, wasn't it? That he was told he was letting Verstappen pass for, because there were alternative strategies. He shouldn't have had any expectation to win the race if they were close, but it was interesting, and I can't help but wonder what he's thinking, that his race was compromised because it seemed like they just didn't want to let... Well, they just want to tell an already frustrated Verstappen to let him pass, even though it was pretty clear that position was going to come back to Max anyway. And it does seem like a delicate balancing act, doesn't it? You know, on one hand, it's probably good for Sergio Perez looking for another contract, but on the other, Team Harmony can't be taken for granted. Or is Sergio Perez really have no prospect of ever expecting anything like that from Red Bull? No, I agree it can't be taken for granted. And, you know, they, they do need to keep Checo relatively happy. But I think the other thing that Checo was upset about, like I said, the early switch was one of them. But also the fact that he was on a two-stop that eventually became a three-stop. And I think he looked at it and he thought, well, Max had the better strategy. You know, Max uh, obviously started ahead, made that mistake. That was all on him. Um, And yet then still Red Bull managed to engineer a way where he was on the better strategy to the point that Checo had to move out the way to make Max's strategy work at the end. And it just didn't, all of it just didn't seem fair from inside the cockpit. And even from outside the cockpit, I think, you know, if you're a neutral looking on and, you know, you're a fan, then you're going to look at it and say, this isn't fair. If you're, if you, again, if you've invested that money that Red Bull has in, in that team, then you're going to understand why they did it. And, you know, that's ultimately it. And that, you know, that is part of Formula One. And as you say, when Checo signed that Red Bull deal and, uh, you know, got given a place um, at a top team, that was part of it. Unless he, you know, performs at the very top level. If it out-qualified Max on Saturday, you know, had been way ahead of the race and they told him you know turn down the engine and pull him back then yeah okay you've got you know a real, a real problem there i think but he's got to look at it and say well still the biggest limiting factor on him is not 
the team orders it's not the strategy it's it's his performance relative to max that that's what's going to mean that he doesn't win a championship at the end of this year so there needs to be a bit of self-reflection as well but I, I completely understand his frustration well to take a step back from here of course part of the the problem for max aside from the fact that drs wasn't working was that the mercedes car was ahead of him and in the last few races that wouldn't have even been such a problem even at a track like barcelona where passing is normally quite difficult this weekend completely different complexion for mercedes race Let's go back and talk about some of those upgrades. Not all of them obvious. In fact, that's something we are lacking a little bit this year, I guess, with so much uh, importance on the floor. It's not always obvious all of the upgrades, the significance of them. But this seemed like a genuine step forward for Mercedes. It wasn't just the Friday practice in Miami. lasted the entire weekend. How confident is the team that this is a, a step forward based on what we saw, particularly on the Sunday? They're very, very confident um, to the point that, yeah, they're talking about this as as a breakthrough race. Um the problem they've had from the start of the year is it's obviously the porpoising and um that has meant that they haven't been able to run their car as low as they'd like to and all the performance that they were getting from their simulations came from that low ride height as it does for all the teams you know um but the problem was is that they were carrying that bouncing into corners um also i mean in extreme examples they were breaking the floor uh you know they were breaking parts of the car because it was bouncing so dramatically um so they had to find a solution to that now the issue was is that you know, funnily enough, uh, this porpoising wasn't happening in any of their simulations. It wasn't happening in the wind tunnel. It wasn't happening in the CFD, which is why they turned up to, you know, the Bahrain test and the first few races with the car that they did, because everything in the uh, simulations was telling them that it was perfectly fine and it was going to go like a rocket ship and potentially, you know, win the championship. And they got it on the track and it wasn't doing that. And the only way they could solve it is, is raise the right height. So the idea... Uh, was obviously to try and find some updates that that solved that that bouncing issue but the problem is if you can't model it how do you know you can't say let's change this edge of the floor or this underfloor profile and um and hope that uh you know and, and put it through the simulations and see that oh the car's no longer bouncing because the car was never bouncing in the simulations so they were having to do all their research uh on track which is very unusual and um in but in miami they they in Friday practice, they felt like they had found a solution, but then the smallest thing, wind direction change or, you know, uh, track grip going up, um, even, you know, just turning the power unit up were variables that would knock this car, you know, back into a bad place. Um, but now uh, with these upgrades, um, the ones we could see included uh, a little kind of winglet under uh, just ahead of the front of the floor, uh, some quite significant changes to uh, the edge of the floor, which I think has helped alleviate some of it. And then uh, some new deflectors at the back, and then they also changed something on the front wing, but I don't think that's entirely related. Um, and uh, you know, all those updates combined have, have given them a much more stable platform. And you just watch on board. The, the drivers were saying they were still getting some bouncing through the high-speed corners, so turn three and turn nine, which isn't a good thing at all when you're at Barcelona um, but on the straights uh, the, the porpoising kind of completely went away so that is a huge huge step and um, where they think they are now is probably about 0.3 seconds off the front of the pack off the Red Bull or the Ferrari which, you know which those who are so close that depends on the track and the, and the conditions and the question now is whether they can bring 0.3 seconds of new updates uh, now that they've solved this initial problem and get themselves back into uh, into contention. Now they, they feel that they have that, 
they, they know where they could find that. The danger is, is that if you bring that to the car, will the porpoise in return? So they're still learning to some extent. But what they have at the moment is a stable platform, which is they're a little bit off the front, but it's kind of put them as a solid third best car. Uh, and then they've always said that they felt they've got a better race car than a qualifying car. Uh, and we've seen that a number of occasions, uh, mainly because they struggled with tyre warm-up. Now, whether when we go somewhere a bit cooler, they'll still struggle with tyre warm-up will be another issue for them. But uh, we'll have to wait and see on that one. Um, but uh, you know, they, they feel that they've always had this better race car, which is why I think Lewis was able to do that remarkable race. Um, and George's race was very good as well. You know, uh, he obviously was mixing it with Red Bulls for quite a long time uh, on merit. But um, yeah, if you look at Lewis's time in clear air that that's where you get the real confidence that mercedes could actually get back into this championship at some stage hypothetical but as you said that that pace in clear air if you look at the the lap charts was pretty much on par with verstappen when you could kind of liken them and this despite the fact him making one fewer stop is it fair enough for Toto Wolff to have said and for Lewis Hamilton to have rhetorically asked that had they not crashed on that first lap with Kevin Magnussen dropped to 19th, 54 seconds off the lead, that this could have been the first race? I think that would have been a stretch if you looked at, you know, when Max had his car in, in clear air as well and everything was going his way, then I think it would have been tricky. Certainly if Leclerc had stayed in the race, you know, then uh, it would have been very, very tricky. But I think uh, Lewis had the pace to challenge Checo on who was on actually the, the strategy was closer with with Checo I know again Checo free stopped at the end but that's only because he could you know why wouldn't they at that stage um, and you look at that and yeah it, it does look like Hamilton had the pace you know really what you got to do is minus 40 seconds from his his race time at the end and that puts him with Checo and, and that's you know roughly what he he, he he lost as a result of uh, the very thing that went wrong on that on that first lap he came out I think he was 30 seconds off the back of the pack so yeah good 40 to the front so um that is uh yeah that, that that shows the potential of it but the reality of course is that when you're running in traffic and all the rest of it certainly with the cooling issues that the mercedes was ha- having um then i think they would have had a much trickier race uh yeah both with keeping that engine in the right temperature and also the tires so it is it is a bit of a hypothetical but look from where they were even one race ago, certainly where they were at the start of the season, it is a huge step, the kind of step that you don't really expect to see in Formula 1. But I think because we've got this new set of regulations and you know the problems that they had were so unexpected uh, and so specific, and the solution seems to have dealt with the majority of those issues, um, that's why we've seen such a big step. But that so rarely happens in F1. So from now on, I think now they've got this stable platform, it's going to be about bringing... Uh, developments to it which they're delighted about because it's i think it's been quite frustrating for them seeing red bull and ferrari continue to make little steps forward little steps forward especially red bull and mercedes not being able to react because they had to first solve this bouncing porpoising issue before they could start to really get stuck into uh, making the car quicker but now they can so that's that's the position they're in now and uh, i think they're they're pretty excited about it and um you know i, I think they would say you know look wait wait five races you know, and, and we could be in a good position. And what's more, from this weekend, they're pretty confident they've got a nice wide setup window with this car. For a long time, it looked like it was super peaky. You know, like we've seen with previous Mercedes, where if it's not in the right place, then the tires, you know, spiral out one way or the other. And you know, they really struggle with it. Uh, which I think we saw with Red Bull a little bit at the start of the year. Although Red Bull seemed to have got that under control quite nicely. But no, it, it looks uh, 
from what they're saying that uh, you know they've actually got quite a bit to play with which means that this car could be quick at a number of different types of track not just this one which of course is always the fear that you know you have you have this one great result and it's down to the ridiculously high track temperatures or whatever but um but no i i think mercedes are looking like they're they're on the right track again just a couple more things before we wrap this one up. I want to touch really briefly on Carlos Sainz, not his race in particular, which was just a little bit average. Very fortunate Max Verstappen got affected by the same gust of wind. Otherwise, I think it would have looked a little bit more pathetic on his part instead. No, it wasn't completely his fault. Uh, he's also been struggling just generally with the, the looser rear end of the Ferrari, so not a surprise to see that car completely swing around, I suppose. But it feels like while he's still struggling with some problems with this car, the fact that the Ferrari and Leclerc are no longer in the lead of, of the championship. Still very long way to go. It's by no means a disaster. But has time run out now for him to play a role in this championship? Not in the point sense, but in the sense that Ferrari can no longer afford to have two equal drivers. It seems inevitable now, doesn't it, that, that he's going to be the number two I would Ferrari. say so, and especially with um, the way that Red Bull managed their race. You know, it's going to be... Not only is it difficult to go up against Red Bull and Max Verstappen, but if Red Bull and Max Verstappen are putting all their eggs in the Max Verstappen basket, which they appear to be doing, then uh, Ferrari are probably going to have to mim- mimic that with with Leclerc. They just don't have the luxury of performance to uh, to be able to let their drivers race at the front. Having said that, how often has science really looked like he's going to get in the way of Leclerc this year? I I can't really remember any examples. And of course, he's had he's got his own demons that he's fighting for whatever reason. Uh, mainly the rear of that car, it does seem to be. Uh, to, to be the weakness for him but uh again it's a bit like the Perez situation you know when he looks back at it at the end of the year it's not going to be because let's say in Monaco you know he puts in a brilliant lap but Ferrari switched the cars or whatever you know through pit stops or whatever we've seen teams do that before um when he looks back at it that's not going to be the killer blow it's going to be the fact that he wasn't quick enough and he was making all these mistakes at the start of the year so um yeah, as tough as it is, I think sometimes for drivers in those situations, you're better off look playing the long game. He's got this new contract with Ferrari that's going to go several years. Make sure you're in a good place to make the most of that, you know, from next year onwards. But, you know, we've seen these situations before. Haven't we? How many times did we say that about Valtteri Bottas and uh, when he was at Mercedes? And then ultimately, of course, you know, five years of that went by and uh, he was at Alfa Romeo. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's a tricky one for science. But I, I think, you know, he has to focus on, on himself first. And that if it comes to it and he does get himself ahead of Leclerc, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there's a radio call. Uh, a great segue then onto Valtteri Bottas, who was one of the standouts uh, of this race. He's been a bit of a standout for a, a lot of races this season, or Alfa Romeo at a minimum has. It seems like the upgrade package they did bring was very effective. He was pretty much clear of the midfield for most of the race, except he was one of the few drivers, or his pit wall was one of the few that didn't see the potential or was too committed to that two-stop race. I thought it was interesting how disappointed he was afterwards, and I feel like that says more than than, than the data could about how much potential that car, they think that car has after this uh, upgrade round. Yeah, I, I think it was a fourth-place finish if they'd done a sensible strategy. I really do. Um, you know, Science was clearly struggling with, with with that Ferrari again, potentially damage on that car as a result of his trip through the gravel. Um, Lewis, I think, would have got up behind him, but had uh, Valtteri, you know, when Lewis pitted, I think it was lap 48 I have on my screen here. If, if Alpha had gone just after that, put on another set of uh, softs, which I'm pretty sure they had. I mean, they must have had some used ones from, from Quali. Then... Um, you know, then he would have gone to the race and he should have been able to keep Lewis behind. It certainly would have been a good fight. But you know, as it turned out, they, 
they thought, and this was his explanation afterwards, they just thought the mediums would go that long. There was no evidence prior to that point of the race that they would do, <laughs> but for some reason they felt they would. So it, it was a really strange one. I don't know whether that's just a, maybe a bit of inexperience of being that far up the, you know, up the order at that stage of the race and just wanting to kind of make sure they go with what obviously they maybe felt was a safer strategy. I don't know. It, it, it didn't make a huge amount of sense, uh, but it just seemed like they didn't quite have the confidence in uh, in the car or whatever to make that pit stop, potentially lose a couple of places on, on track, but everybody else, you know, would have, would have filtered into place later on anyway. So yeah, it's a strange one, but I completely get Valtteri's frustrations because you'll remember Valtteri's also used to fighting for podiums regularly. So, you know, he's, we knew as soon as he went to Alfa Romeo that probably wasn't going to happen anymore. And what he's actually got is a car that's a lot better than people expected. But then when you don't quite get the most out of it, you know, that, that's got to be frustrating. Um, but yeah, what, what, what can you do? Uh, again, I guess it's just one though, a lesson they'll have to learn from and, uh, and, and kind of, you know, maybe be a bit more reactive next time. But uh, the performances from Valtteri so far this year have been absolutely brilliant. And it's great to see, isn't it? Because there was a danger that he went there kind of just disappeared into the back of the midfield and we never really heard from Paul Valtteri again, but he's making sure that everyone knows that he's he's a top-class driver uh, and um, can even get a you know a car that's clearly not, you know, it's not the best-funded team and all the rest of it, but he can get it right up there at the front. Yeah, pity that strategy didn't pull off or at least split their losses with Sainz and Hamilton if they thought they couldn't repass both of them if they lost track position. But anyway, he lost track position to both. And and finally, this I really thought was going to be the race that Mick Schumacher scored his first points, qualified in the top 10, first double top 10 qualification for Haas since 2019, I think it was, in Brazil. Uh, and had a great start as well. You know, sometimes we've seen him have quite poor starts. He had a really good one, was up into the top six, I think it was. The pace wasn't there in the end for the Haas car, and you've got to wonder about the, the upgrade strategy to wait until France. That is a long time away, as much as they say there's more pace to unlock from that car, and I'm sure there is. But they also committed to that two-stop strategy. They were undercut very early by a whole bunch of cars who stopped a little bit earlier than them on the first stop. Obviously happened again by the end of the race. And it feels like a shame because if you're... Uh, or it seems like if, you, if you're going to wait a long time for upgrades, you need to be a little bit sharper in terms of race execution because that pace is not going to naturally be there for long enough to just rely on the car, I would have thought. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it, it, again, after the fact, clearly a mistake. You know, had had the tire curve not dropped off as much as it did, then obviously we'd, we'll be praising them. But like I said, there was no indication from from the race up to that point that, that it would do. And I think maybe, you know, maybe they both missed out a bit from Lewis not going uh, the full distance on the medium tyres that he started on because uh, that would have given them a better mm -hmm. indication. Uh, I know they had, they had Kevin who went quite, he did a, essentially a one-stop because uh, he went medium hard. And um, Maybe they'd seen in Kevin's data that uh, the mediums had gone the first 29 laps, I can see on my screen, um, done that first 29 laps okay and they thought, well, let's try and stretch Mick out on 36 laps but it just seems like an awful long way to go especially for a driver who is you know clearly finding some form at the moment you know he's, I think this is the best we've ever seen Mick Schumacher drive in Formula One but you know still a driver with relatively little experience um in temperatures 
which you know I suspect he's really driven a Formula One car on Pirelli tyres in you know it was a big ask it was a big ask and I'd have to go back through the exact details of the pit stops around there and who was undercutting him and how it would have looked and whether he would have lost positions anyway because I haven't gone into that detail on that one so perhaps that was the other reason they did it but I kind of agree you know like that two-stop strategy it seemed to come clear you know during the race that it just wasn't going to uh to yield a result because yeah the the, the medium tires just could not hold on a shame for mick schumacher maybe the points will come well i'm sure they'll come eventually it's just a matter of when well so we hope anyway a really interesting spanish grand prix a little bit unexpectedly interesting and a real twist in the championship lawrence it was great to catch up with you and talk about it thank you michael A rare technical retirement would be justification enough for Ferrari feeling hard done by in Spain, but the Italian team is confident its upgrades have delivered the expected step forward, and even Red Bull Racing appeared wary despite its 1-2 finish. Throw in Mercedes' building resurgence, and the championship picture has somehow become less clear in the aftermath of this race. Thanks very much to Lawrence Edmondson for joining me. The Strategy Report is powered by LeaveCal. Keep track of employee leave and make resource planning easy. Search LeaveCal in the Zero App Store. You can subscribe to The Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating and a review to help spread the word. You can also find us on social media. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast. Special thanks to Ben Loke from Bloke Designs for the show artwork and our theme music is by Simon Hosford. My name's Michael Amanato and I'll be back next week to wrap up the Monaco Grand Prix.